I have a prediction for your recommendations on today's podcast. And I know we're not talking about recommendations yet, but I want to make this prediction before we even get started. <laughs> I predict that all three of your package recommendations today will be Swift 5.9 only. Um, interesting. Should I give you the answer already? You can give me the answer, yeah, sure. Not, not what they are, but, uh, but the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, actually, let me let me check because I I'm pretty sure that it's not five nine only. Oh, it's not. No, no. I I would have uh, I I would have bet that it isn't. No, there's one. Um, there's one that isn't. <laughs> oh, interesting. I have the other way around. I have one that is and two that aren't. <laughs> so between us, we have a full set of five nine only packages. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of interesting stuff coming in, right, on 5.9. Lots of macro-related packages. Lots of macros, yeah. yeah. I think it, it proves that we we did the right thing um, getting 5.9 onto into our compatibility testing as quickly as we as we could. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I am a bit bummed out that we can't support or don't support the product filter yet. Um, I mean, we might might talk about that at least briefly now in as as part of the news right the plan was to support the product colon macro um clause as a filter mm-hmm. um but we can't yet and the reason is that products aren't declared in the um, macros aren't declared in the swift package manifest as products they are targets and then they get added to a library and the library is the product. So we have no way of um, distinguishing them at that level to support our filters because our filters really look at the products that are declared in a package. Um, we have some right. thoughts around how to how to fix that. Unfortunately, the, the straightforward way of doing that and supporting that is not possible right now. So bear with us. Um, I've seen that some packages actually have macro in their keywords. So if you search for macro, you still get them, you get a decent list, but it's obviously, you know, there are some, I guess there's a package called macro that'll end up in there that that has nothing to do with macros themselves. So this is not as strong a filter and we hope we'll be able to improve it, but some authors have worked towards um, being discoverable in that way. So that's actually nice. It's also probably worth just mentioning how people can add keywords to their packages because it's it's a slightly opaque uh, process of um, we pick up keywords out of um, GitHub keywords. So if you would like to add the macro uh, keyword to your Swift package, you need to go to GitHub, add the keyword there, and then we'll pick that up um, within a few hours. And then once you do a search on the right-hand side of the search results, you can filter on uh, keywords. And if you then hit the macro keyword, then you'll get everything that's tagged with uh, macro. Yeah. But I've been working the last couple of weeks on something that has absolutely nothing to do with Swift (laughs) 5.9. And it's actually something we've talked about before. Um, and I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail because much of it is is not particularly interesting, but there are a couple of things that I think are worth uh, mentioning. So just to um, clarify what the feature is, first of all, I've been working on um, sorting out our Google indexing um, problems. Uh, so Google has... Uh, 
Google loves our package pages. It sends uh, a lot of people towards our package pages. Um, and I think it understands that bit of the site really well. And then as we put documentation hosting onto the site, Google loves us less for the documentation hosting. And there were a couple of problems. The first problem was we were hosting multiple versions of each package's documentation. And some of those package documentations are identical because even though the package has had a new release, the documentation may not have changed. It may have changed, but it also may not have changed. And so um, Google really hates uh, duplicate content in uh, the index. And so what it saw is it saw, okay, here's one set of documentation and here's another set of documentation. And I don't think there's any differences between the two. And it actually started to punish us for that by removing some of those uh, pages from its index, which is what it'll do if it thinks you're trying to game it, which our intentions were true, uh, but our actions made it look like we were trying to game it. <laughs> um, so Obviously, we want to have multiple versions of documentation. That's part of the feature that we built. Uh, we want people to be able to go back to previous major versions. We want uh, you to be able to see um, the difference between the documentation on the default branch and like the latest stable release and that kind of thing. But um, so the first thing we had to do was let Google know which version of each package's documentation is canonical. Uh, and so every page in the documentation. In fact, most pages on the site now have a um, a meta tag inside the HTML that says, if you fetch this page and it's not the canonical version, here is a pointer to the canonical version. So all of our documentation pages now link their, con their canonical page as the latest stable releases documentation. So that was step one. And the second step is then, to start to tell Google about all the different pages we have on the documentation uh, site. Um, and that is actually what I want to talk a, a little bit more about and in more detail uh, about, because that's that's where it gets more interesting that for people who are not running a package index, <laughs> 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 which the first one is like very much a specific problem that we just had. We've tried to fix it, hopefully, you know, these things. It'll take Google time to trust uh, the site again, and it's it's we're already seeing some results, which is good. Um, pages are going back into the index, um, but it's a slow process. So before we move on to going into detail about the uh, about how we're going to tell Google about all these documentations, I, I do just want to mention um, that we had some contributions on solving this canonical URL problem uh, from Toby Herbert, who. Um, noticed several issues with uh, our canonical URLs, mainly to do with kind of uh, casing, letter casing in some of the URLs, because we we honor the case from GitHub of like, if you have your owner name and your repository name with a specific case, we honor that. And our canonicals, we're not honoring that correctly. So um, in addition to some of the work that I did on that, I'd also like to thank Toby for um, for all of his work on that. That was incredibly uh, helpful. Uh, most helpful, actually, was spotting the errors, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is always difficult. So, yeah, the bit that I actually wanted to talk about in a bit more detail is how we tell Google or any search engine about all the pages that 
we have hosted on our documentation site. And we use a feature, um, it's actually an undocumented feature of Doxy uh, for this. Um, and what I'll do is I'll link an article in the show notes um, from Joe Heck, who uh, documented um, or uh, wrote up a potential use for this flag and also how to how to you know how to find and add this flag to your uh, documentation processing so the flag is emit digest and if you add that flag onto the end of your documentation generation command uh, you will get a few extra json files in the output and one of those files is called linkable entities and it's a a collection of effectively every individual piece of documentation in the built documentation that you've just generated. Um, and so what we're doing is we're using that file to pull out all of the paths to every single documentation uh, page in a, in a package's documentation. And then um, we are creating a sitemap out of that set of URLs. So we're effectively saying, give me all of the URLs in this documentation and then we'll make a sitemap that will tell Google, look at all these different pages that we have underneath um, underneath this uh, this package's documentation URL. And if Google then goes and fetches those, it will get correct canonicals for all of those. So we're hoping that the combination of those two things is going to be a good fix to uh, to the Google problem. But the reason I wanted to mention is this this uh, flag is that it is something that you may want to run uh, yourself. So if you are creating Doxy documentation, you might want to extract or generate this file as part of your uh, documentation build so that you can have a sense of all the different paths in your documentation so that you might create a manual curation of here are the most interesting bits of this documentation or maybe the order in which the documentation gets um, uh, gets uh, presented. And again, Joe, in that article that we're going to link in the show notes, he has a good um, uh, good bits of advice on how you can do that in, in, uh, in, in the real world. Right. And, and that's actually a massive amount of links, isn't it? The, the sitemap um, and the total number of pages that we're effectively or have been serving we just never really realized how many it is you had a figure didn't you we do have a figure yeah when when google ingested all of these sitemaps um it now tells you how many urls it found not only in the kind of master sitemap but also in all of the different sitemaps that it found and it found uh, over 250,000 urls in swiftpackageindex.com which is way more than I thought we served. <laughs> mm, yeah. Well, we've got 6,000 packages, but uh, the documentation of obviously dwarfs everything, right? <laughs> that's just lots of symbols. It does. And I think there's actually something that's kind of interesting in that as well, in that, so it's actually, in fact, it's one of our supporters, um, Stream, uh, the company who kindly um, uh, helps to sponsor the site. Um, they have a package which, um, on its own, uh, has 50,000 or 48,000 uh, URLs in their documentation. Wow. And, <laughs> yes. Um, so, first of all, congratulations on being the, the, <laughs> the biggest documentation site by an order of magnitude on the Swift Package Index. Uh, that's, that in itself is, is remarkable. Um, 
I think one of the things that, that that potentially needs looking at in terms of Doxy in general is how many pages it creates. Because I can assure you there are not forty eight thousand useful documentation pages yeah. in that yeah. uh, in that packages documentation. The vast majority of those are contain almost no more information than you could get from just looking at the function signature. Um, and in fact, a lot of them are because they're inherited from like view or something like that. They pick up a whole load of documentation pages um, for for that as well. And I think right, right, that's that's potentially something that you know it's a it's a difficult problem to solve. Like, do you do you just not generate pages for for mm. if they don't have like proper document like what is even is proper documentation right uh it's a difficult problem for doxy to solve but i think that potentially there is an interesting discussion to be had around what that balance is and certainly i don't think fifty thousand urls is the right balance (laughs) Uh, it certainly seems like the wrong side of uh the wrong side of useful um now there's the other side of that which is who should care whether we host 50,000 documentation URLs for one package, as long as you can find the bit of documentation that actually solves your problem. It doesn't matter that there's a whole load of unused documentation pages. So there's, this is not a, there's no kind of clear cut, like there's a clear solution to this problem. Uh, But it is something that I would really enjoy talking to the Doxy team about, actually. Right. Well, it does matter a bit, right, because we are running up to certain limits in site um, map files, aren't we? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So we do need to to think about chunking stuff. And, you know, it, it sort of gets a bit more complicated downstream or, you know, at, at our end and putting it all together because, you know, it's not just a single package. It's like we have, I believe, 400 Document, documented packages now and obviously you know that they all come together in the sitemap now we can we can treat them individually as package pages but this is a place where they all come together and we need to funnel them through one yeah sitemap and that that creates certain challenges just like it created challenges with the size of the doc sets um earlier on um that we needed to solve with the with the, so so the limit that Sven is talking about there is that, that um sitemaps themselves have a 50,000 URL limit. Um, so if you have one sitemap, and we are now doing one sitemap per package, um, if you hit that 50,000 URL limit, then um, Google, I, actually, I'm not I'm not quite sure what it does. Does it just stop reading at 50,000 or does it invalidate the entire file? That's that's a good question that I don't know the answer mm. to. Um, but um, but what we should what we should probably do there and you know we Sven and I talked about this the other day but since then I've thought about it a little bit more I think that we should potentially rather than go into the 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 rather complex solution of having multiple sitemaps for a single package which we're not actually quite there yet because the biggest package we have does only have 48,000 URLs in it um but I wonder if we just clip the sitemap at uh, 50,000 because a sitemap is a guide to Google, and what it it, it, te- it you can tell Google about all your pages with a sitemap. But from each of those pages, it should go and crawl from there. So it's not like if those pages are not in the sitemap, they'll never get crawled. They're less likely to get crawled right. and less likely to get crawled more often. 
But if we're at 50,000 per package, I think we may, we may cut our losses at that point. Well, or it would be nice if there was a way of ordering them, right? I mean, if Doxy had a means of, of putting the ones at front at the front that actually have, you know, user contributed documentation, because I suspect lots of them just have the default um, pages, perhaps, right? Because no one has documented yes. 50,000 symbols. So if there was a way to put that to the top, then that would solve the problem, really. It really would. And, and at that point, we could potentially even say, well, actually, the maximum that we'll have is, let's say, 10,000 or something like that. But yeah. Yeah. You know, there are lots of there are lots of different ways to solve this problem, but I thought it was yeah. an interesting point of discussion, first of all. Um, and secondly, that people may not know about this Emit Digest flag at all because it is uh, an undocumented uh, flag. Yeah. Nice. Um, well, the other thing we can briefly talk about, I suppose, is the, the big thing that happened last week, right? <laughs> Vision OS was released, like uh, the, the SDK was released, and that happened a bit sooner than I thought. Um, are, are you saying that the uh, release of Vision OS is more important than my sitemap? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm interested in this but I haven't actually watched a single WWDC session about Vision OS. I've been more interested in some of the 5.9, the macros stuff, tooling. And I, I thought about this. I've, early on when iOS, you know, the SDK came out, I, I dabbled a bit with it, but I've always been, I've always been interested in, in writing apps and creating that. And I've done a bit of that, but I, I always ended up drifting towards tooling and i think i think this time around i've i've sort of i'm i'm leaning in because it, it seems like you know it's the gold rush again i i suspect it will be to a degree right when this becomes really mainstream i mean the the three and a half thousand dollar device won't be the thing that starts this you know bringing um ar apps into the mainstream but the subsequent devices will so at some point i i suspect we'll have another gold rush where people come up with cool app ideas and, and put them out. Um, but I feel like I'm, I'm going to, to be the one that sells the shovels and not the one that's going after the nuggets. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think with the, with the index, we're in a good position and we, we actually have started um, shoveling a bit, right? We've, <laughs> we have um, rushed to, to start supporting Vision OS um, on top of the 5.9 that we've just added. Yeah. Um, I mean, we weren't completely caught by surprise, but it came earlier than I thought. I thought when they said later this month, I really thought, well, it's going to be this week that it's going to drop. Um, right. But it happened, uh, you know, just one week after WWDC. Um, so, yeah. Do, do you have any plans? Do, do you, are you curious about Vision OS and, and building apps? Yeah, I'm I'm tremendously excited about the platform. Um, I think it's it's the kind of thing that, that, watching people explore i also haven't actually written a line of vision os code yet uh but watching people experiment and bring their apps into the environment and kind of start to build them with that sdk um but actually just thinking more about now that we have a road that we're kind of we've got we've got a wheel on the road towards what what ar could potentially become one day um and i am quite excited about what AR could potentially become one day, and this is the start of that path. And so uh, while I haven't written anything yet, and I, I don't have any plans for a Vision OS app, um, 
I am quite excited excited about it. Yeah, well, it's certainly. I mean, the the, the samples look nice. I think um, I'm. I, I came out of WWC a bit unconvinced regarding the use cases. I mean, we had the discussion beforehand, and I recall saying, "I'm really curious what Apple are going to present as the use cases," and I don't think that has truly happened yet. Perhaps who knows? I mean, it's still there's still time. There's certainly going to be a another sort of introduction once it actually ships so maybe that will change but um i i haven't seen any super super obvious app you know that that would make you jump up and say right this i need this 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 is a thing that's that's totally different from from all other apps have you seen anything like that is there anything convincing i think the the convincing bit is actually um, the fact that it is going to run what are quite standard apps that you might see on your iPad or your iPhone or something like that. And I think that the, I think there's two exciting things going on here. We're on a path to a potential very exciting, very futuristic AR type device. And I, but I think that's a long way away still. Yeah. And then you have this potential device that could, I think be used quite effectively in um in in a work context and um i think having apps around you and having uh i think the, th the concept of kind of screens is interesting and having apps separated from screens is interesting and i don't think there's any specific app that i'm excited about but i'm excited about seeing what that work environment maybe looks like yeah yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's it's easier to see the useful AR app that'll completely change how you do things once the device is like actual glasses, right? I mean, I think that's mm -hmm. you. For me, at least, it's it's hampered by you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't walk around with that thing. I mean, even even if I had one, right? You're not you're not. You... Nor should you, and nor do Apple want you to. Yeah, exactly. But I think they don't want you to because right now it's not that kind of device, right? I think if they were able to ship like real literal glasses, that would change the story yes. of that thing. We're just, I think we're sort of seeing right now the prototype version, obviously way more polished than a prototype that Apple typically don't ship, right? This is like the the breakout iPhone on a on a board with a screen and you know all the parts spread out a bit and and a lot bigger than it was in its final you know first 1.0 shipping shape um it almost feels like it's that's a it's a change in in that they actually released this now to give everyone a glimpse of what's to come way earlier yes and and i think you know i, I wrote a little bit about this in friday's uh, ios dev weekly but one of the things that i was convinced was just a you know it was a it was a feature that was being lined up for whatever AR device that they uh, they released. Was last year in iOS 16, they added um, an AR feature for accessibility, where if you were holding your phone up and approaching a door, it detected the door and it warned you about the door and it told you the information about the door, whether it was push or pull or that kind of thing. Right. And yeah. And and that was such a clear feature for a, a headset yeah, yeah, <laughs> of yeah, some yeah. sort. <laughs> um, like nobody nobody holds their phone up in front of them while they're walking 
around it's 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 not practical to really do that and it so it felt like it felt like this is so clearly a feature for a headset and yet of course the headset doesn't do that and the reason is you shouldn't be walking around with this head headset any more than you should be walking around with your phone in yeah. front of you <laughs> yeah it's not it's not that kind of headset yet right that's that changes the whole the whole um pitch yeah yeah i'm i'm confident that we'll see that feature at some point in in a device that you are intended to walk around outside it with yeah yeah, absolutely. Um, right, maybe to just bring this briefly back to <laughs> to what we're doing. So, platform Vision OS platform compatibility testing is coming. It's coming along. Um, in fact, the builder tests have just all passed. Um, so there aren't any. We're all set up. We we just have to just <laughs> we just need to do a little more typing, <laughs> and then we're done. It's all just typing. <laughs> yeah. Um, there have been some difficulties adjusting our test suite because we're once again in in a state where there is no single macOS version where on which you can run all of the Swift versions that we support, which is the four latest point releases, so six, seven, eight, and five point nine. And this is just my eternal wish that at some point we won't be forced to update the OS and Xcode versions and then have machines that can only run, you know, a, a small set of those four. I mean, ideally it would be even more than four. Um, I, I just want this Linux Docker thing where any Linux can run any Swift version in a, <laughs> in a Docker container. And you're not going to be happy until Yes. Oh, yeah. God, I want this so much. I want this so much. I mean, I, I do think we need to consider virtualization at some point because it's getting really, really it is tricky because it also impacts our regression test suite. Um, it's it's really hard to keep testing package versions that used to fail on 5.5. 5. I mean, we're not even testing for 5.5 anymore, so I've just moved them forward uh, time and time again to, you know, the oldest version that we support. But at some point, you you lose the capability to build those packages with, you know, the older Swift versions or the newer ones. And and the test cases we were actually testing for aren't valid anymore. And it's really hard to keep that that regression test in place in some shape or fashion. I mean, because there's there's still value in the test. It just happens that we don't have a package at the right version or Swift at the right version to, to still test that. So that makes it quite difficult. And I wish I wish that part of it was easier um for our setup um, and not having to manage um, our our machines like that and decide which one we're pulling forward then we lose capacity on other swift versions because you know the latest one can only build 5.9 yeah uh, and so on and so on and and on, on linux we just have, never have to do anything it's just any swift version we can just run yeah yeah so we're currently split split back ag across three distinct operating system versions again we have yeah. um Monterey compiling 5.7 or, or anything with Xcode 13. Um, Ventura compiling anything with Xcode 14, which is 5.7 and 5.8 maybe. And then we now have a Sonoma uh, build machine that is now running uh, beta 2 with the Vision OS SDK, which to bring us back to our original point, uh, we hope to ship um, soon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, next by next time <laughs> recording, we'll definitely have it. I think we'll have it um, next week, if not late this week. Depends a bit on when we want to pull the trigger to actually deploy it. But I'm, I, it might it might happen tomorrow or the day after. Mm -hmm. 
So, and that will be that will be very exciting because we'll then have um, compatibility status for all of our packages with um, with five uh, five and the Vision OS SDK. Yeah, yeah. And first new platform since we added ARM testing, right? Which was arguably, I mean, it was a proper platform in our matrix at some point. So interesting times. So we've um, we've done quite a lot of talking about, uh, yeah. about <laughs> news and package index this week. So I think we should move uh, swiftly on to uh, to some package recommendations. Uh, would you like to kick us off? All right, I'll do that. The first package I have is called Metacodable by Soumya Ranjan Mahunt, and I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, this is the first of two macro packages that I'm going to talk about and it's a very nice package to tweak or empower codable performances um, and the best way to describe this is imagine you have a codable struct and you have a field and you've given it a nice name in swift but the codable you know the json file has a different name and you want to change the field's name, just that one field's name. And imagine that struct has lots of fields. What you have to do is you have to spell out all the fields in the, I think it's called codable keys, the, the protocol that you have to adopt, you know, to, to change or override the key definitions. Uh, and this package will give you an at codable path macro that you can tack on to your field just to rename a single field without having to spell everything else out i, I suppose under the hood it just expands everything for you and that's that's just a perfect use case for a macro right because that's a very tedious thing to do it reads much nicer because there's no noise it's really just about that one field that you're going to change um really mm -hmm. nice um it has a couple other tricks up its sleeves it allows nested paths so Imagine you have a nested JSON struct and you want to pull out something that's like, you know, drill down a couple of um, objects into the, the JSON file and then pull it up up to the to the outer layer, so to speak, and to assign it to a property there. It can do that. Also be the codable path. And there's a codable compose um, attribute, which is, I've, it's difficult to describe. It allows you to layer or compose different codable types into a common type so you can do a little refactoring in case you're using object mapping onto um, json structs it's best to look at the documentation which is quite extensive um how that works so it's a really nice package if you deal with these things um in codable and it's called metacodable by somia ranjan mahunt Sounds like a package that's um, that's that's not not so much revolutionary, but it's going to save you some time, right? Exactly. So my first package recommendation is also uh, in includes a, a macro. Um, it's both a very modern package in that it only works with Swift five five point nine, but it's also a throwback um, to uh, the Objective C days <laughs> because it is a macro that wraps an Objective C function, which uh, which is uh, I think a nice little. <laughs> A nice little contrast between the two. Um, it's called Associated Object, uh, and it's by, uh, I think it's actually the second week in a row that we've had a package by uh, P-X9. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> uh, we're back uh, We're back with, um, with another PX9 package. So Associated Object allows you to, um, in a Swift extension, declare an additional property which right. is yeah. something that you can't current, 
currently do because you can't uh, de- declare anything that includes uh, storage and an extension. And the way that it works is that it uses the old Objective C associated object uh, API to uh, to store and retrieve um, uh, values out of um, uh, out of memory. And so the the implementation of it is really nice as an annotation on a property that you're adding to whatever it is that you're extending. Uh, you just say at associated object, and you have to give it some memory management information about whether it should retain it, whether it's non-atomic, you know, right, real right. throwback to the old Objective-C <laughs> days. <laughs> um, but what it actually then does is it just lets you then, on the next line, create a variable, and that variable can have an initial value, and it can do all the things that a, a, that you would expect it to do. And so... It's. I. I don't know. It's. It's the. I. I really liked the. The. the idea of this package. Um. I'm not sure whether. I'd. I'd put it into a project, but I've certainly used Objective. Um. C associated objects many many times, with, and they are very reliable. Right. So there's no reason you wouldn't. Uh. But it also feels like you're bending the language to something that it wasn't intended to do, which is always kind of ah. Uh, should you do that? <laughs> Does it work on any type, or would it have to be a class, the extension? I think it has to be a has class. Has to be a class, yeah. right. Yeah, because it needs the Objective-C runtime, and that only, it probably adds an Objective-C annotation, doesn't it? Yeah, Yeah. exactly, yeah. So, um, so, but I thought it was, it was a, a curiosity and worth mentioning. Nice. Right, well, I'm going to continue the theme of <laughs> macro packages. <laughs> and my second package is called Renamed by Joseph Duffy. And this is another really nice package. Not a spectacular thing, but really neat. It allows you to rename entities with a deprecation warning. So effectively what it does, if you've renamed a property, you can add this at renamed macro annotation and spell out the old name that it had before. And what it does then under the hood, it creates a stub of the old property that forwards to the new one. And the the stub has a deprecation annotation that uh, tells users that still use the old property, what new name it moved to. And, you know, none of that, it, all of this is very easy to, to do manually. But if you have this, you know, and you do a little refactoring, you don't need to sprinkle all this extra stuff throughout. You can just add this one single thing mm-hmm. to your property and be done with it. And that's not just properties. Um, that's also available for structs, classes, enums, properties, functions, and more. So quite nice. That's called Renamed by Joseph Duffy. And not an Objective-C declaration insight. <laughs> My next package is um, one that we may end up using. Um, so it is uh, a package called Swifty ES Build, and uh, it's from the Tourist uh, organization. So Tourist is a package, um, an open source package that will create and interact with Xcode projects. Um, so you, instead of having, like if you're building an iOS or a macOS application uh, and you've either got a very complex or a big team working on a single Xcode project, um, Tourist is a way that you can um, create an Xcode project without actually checking an Xcode project into your uh, repository. Mm. So you you create the definition of an Xcode project and then it generates one for you, um, which is easier to work with in a big team and has other advantages as well. And one of the things that that organization has now added is a new uh, 
package called Swifty ES Build. Um, and it's actually part of a, I think, a, 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 a pair of packages, one that I think we will use and one that we won't use because we don't use that technology. So the first one is Swifty ES Build and the second one is Swifty Tailwind. So ES Build is the JavaScript build tool that we use to generate all our front-end assets, JavaScript and CSS in the Swift Package Index. Um, and it's a tool that, that takes, for example, TypeScript or SCSS or SAS files um, or, or, or any of these kind of intermediate formats that you have in, in front-end web world and generates uh, JavaScript and CSS uh, it, and minifies it and compresses it and makes sure it's it's uh, it's efficiently stored and all the rest of it. So that's ES build. And the way that we currently build our front end is that we have two separate build processes. We have the package build, which compiles the Swift code and generates the Vapor application. And then we have a separate process that runs as part of our uh, deploy process, which which runs ESBuild just in a Docker container uh, and um, generates the front end side of things. And then the two things are combined and we ship the application out to the servers so it can be hosted. Um, what I want to play with is whether we can finally bring those two build processes to, processes together uh, using uh, ES build. So this is going to be very specific to people doing um, web work. Let's I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to say web work more than server-side Swift because you could generate this for any web package. You know, this, is, this is not specific to Vapor or server-side Swift specifically, um, but it certainly is specific to web work. So maybe one slightly off to one side of what most people will want, but it's something that, that I'm going to look at for the project. Right, and this is a, I'm not sure if you've said it and I missed it, this is a build plugin, right, that would run in the build phase or something. You, you're right, I didn't say it, and, and yes, it is. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> My final pick is, I'm sorry to say I'm going down that road again, is called Swift Math <laughs> <laughs> by Michael Griebling or Michael Griebling. I'm never sure if this person is of, uh, of German heritage and moved or is actually German. Um, the name certainly looks German. Um, and this is a bit of a follow-up to the package Math Jacks Swift that I talked about, um, I guess, at length <laughs> in episode 27. But this is a bit different, so I want to bring it up again, <laughs> because this is a Swift implementation of a LaTeX uh, math renderer. Um, for those who may recall, the other package is actually using uh, JavaScript's core and um, web views to, to do the rendering, and this is based on a JavaScript LaTeX renderer. Um, the advantage of this one is that it's um, a Swift implementation, it's, it claims to be significantly faster than using web views. Uh, it's actually based on another package called iOS Math, which is in Objective-C. But this is a Swift translation of that, but the README specifically calls out that package. It, it isn't just a straight-up translation, it also has some claims to have some bug fixes and improvements on top of it. So I think it sounds like Swift Math is the successor of iOS Math. Um, right. Mm -hmm. I think both support um, um, UIKit and AppKit, so they, they aren't, I, it's, it's called iOS Math, but I think it also supports macOS, the other one. 
Um, but I, I only tried this one and the really nice thing is you can just stick it in a playground. So you can use our um, feature, try in a playground, which I get never tired of mentioning, but I just absolutely love it. I can throw it in there and create a Swift UI view um, and then have LaTeX expression rendered. And this time it actually doesn't pull in any extra stuff. It's all um, it's all in, in a Swift package itself. Um, so really nice. And that opens up again, of, of course, the, the whole world of rendering all sorts of math expressions wherever you use Swift UI or you know, UIKit or AppKit actually in that case. Um, so really nice Swift math by uh, Michael Griebling. I'm, I'm going to go with the US um, uh, version of the name. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to say that that could potentially be even more niche than my ES build plugin. <laughs> <laughs> well, here you go. You, you're coming here for the niche package recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> um the final my final package recommendation for this week is definitely not niche i think it fits in to almost i would say any mac os or ios package uh sorry uh application um and it's a package called review kit um and again it's another repeat uh <laughs> repeat author um so it's it's by jihad gunders and um it's called Re review kit um and so there's, there's been an API now for a long time where you can request or give offer the opportunity for somebody using your application to uh, fill in a, uh, a review or submit a star rating for your application on the App Store. And that API is quite unusual in Apple APIs is that in that you can call it as many times as you would like to, but it will only actually fire um, a certain number of times within a uh, 12 month period. So if you call that function three times within the first week of somebody using your application, no matter how many times you call it in the future, there is no, uh, it will never display to the, to, to, to the person using your app. And so a good practice way of offering that kind of, uh, opportunity to review your application, um, is to, present that prompt at carefully curated times. And quite often, uh, you know, it, it seems to be good practice to say, well, when somebody has done something positive in your application, that's potentially a good time to ask them for a review. So if they've just, if you write in a to-do application, when somebody completes a to-do, that's a, it's an opportunity that they've just done something that they're happy with and they're done using your app at that point. So they're probably going to, the next step of, of after completing a to-do is probably to quit the application or to, to move context to somewhere else. So that's maybe a good opportunity to present one of these reviews, review prompts. And so the package allows you to record positive events and define criteria um, so you can say, for example, I'm looking for five positive events within the last 30 days, and it takes care of measuring those, keeping track of them, and then if the criteria is hit, it will present or it will attempt to present that review prompt for you. Nice. Um, and again, this is the kind of thing that it's that there's there's no 
as far as I know, I haven't looked at the source code, but there's no, there's, no, there's nothing kind of terribly complex going on behind the scenes, but it's the kind of thing that you can just slot into your application and get a better experience for the people using it. And also for you, because these review prompts, when presented correctly, can really make a big difference. Yeah. I've seen story after story after story of people saying, as soon as I put this in, the number of views just started to climb. Like it just, people do review if you ask them to, as as long as you've made a good app, (laughs) um, people do do it. Yeah. It's nice to have that taken care of, isn't it? Um, Really nice. It really is. And talking of reviews, um, so I actually had a piece of a piece of feedback this week about the podcast, which was really nice. Um, and it was from somebody who was saying that uh, we should <laughs> we should be a little more self promotional in the podcast. And I'm not going to do this every time, um, but it is just worth mentioning that if you enjoy the podcast or enjoy the package index, then sharing it, liking the video you know, telling somebody about it. I think, I think more than, more than the traditional like and subscribe, I would much rather, if you enjoy it, just, just tell somebody about it. Uh, that would really be, uh, appreciated, appreciated by us. Uh, and, um, is your opportunity to, to hopefully we're presenting this review prompt after a positive experience. <laughs> yeah. Let us know. I'm, <laughs> I'm curious what people think. Absolutely. Excellent. So until next time, Yeah, see you in two weeks. Absolutely, see you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.